There are many words out there for individuals who don't jump right in on the edtech bandwagon. The word cynic might come to mind. And one of these people, Stanford professor Larry Cuban, considers himself a healthy skeptic and a diehard optimist. And he's got the experience to boot. He's been a teacher, a principal, a superintendent, a professor, a historian. I mean, this guy's the real deal. Cuban's become famous worldwide for his teachings and writings on school reform and classroom practice, and he's also written frequently about when technology does not deliver. His 2009 book, Oversold and Underused, Computers in the Classroom, is just one of many of his writings that venture into that space. But recently, Cuban took to his personal blog to write that he would be shifting his focus from disappointments and failures in uses of new technologies to best cases of such use in districts, schools, and classrooms. We visited his home in Palo Alto to get the inside scoop and to hear his thoughts on whether venture-backed edtech companies are hurting education or taking it into the next century. And with that, I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm Blake Montgomery. Welcome to the EdSearch Podcast. Poshan Lo coached Team USA to its first victory in 21 years in the International Math Olympiad. Congratulations, Team USA. Now the Carnegie Mellon professor is on a mission to restore students' confidence in math. First up, deliver free weekly brain teasers that, quote, show the amazing beauty of math, end quote, and emphasize creative thinking over computation and equations. Lowe's hoping his coaching formula will also help him grow his startup, XPy. As users of the now-dead Google Reader recall, not all Google products work out. Soon, you can add Google Play for Education, a curated marketplace for educational apps, to that list. Starting March 14th, the company will no longer offer licenses for GPFE. All the learning apps will still be available on the Google Play Store. The Google Play for Education marketplace was first marketed in 2013 as a feature to entice schools to buy Android tablets. But with Chromebooks dominating the K-12 device market, Google has decided to cut the tablets loose. Speaking of Google, the company has responded to Minnesota Senator Al Franken's open letter that questioned its privacy policies. Google wrote in its own seven-page missive that declared that it neither uses students' personal information to target them with advertisements nor sells that information to third parties. The company does, however, use the information to update and improve Google products, according to the letter. Franken said he was happy with the response and planned to work with Google in the future. Now, there may be a glut of digital math products, but there aren't many catering to the needs of minority learners and students in remediation, according to New School's Venture Fund. That's why the nonprofit will start providing grants ranging from 50K to 150K to up to 15 companies for more inclusive math tools. Applications for the new middle and high school math challenge are open until March 14th. On Thursday, February 11th, D.C. Public Schools Office of the State Superintendent of Education sent around an internal memo that announced that the private data of 12,000 DCPS students with special needs was accidentally uploaded to a public D.C. Council account on Dropbox. Yikes. Information included ID number, race, age, disabilities, and special services the student received. Maybe in exchange the soup should share his personal details with all those students too? Hey teachers. Amazon is testing a tool that it says can help you navigate the jungles of open educational resources dubbed Amazon Inspire. The company has invited select educators to beta test a net platform where they can upload, 
manage, share, and discover resources in a way that resembles Amazon's reviewing and purchasing marketplace. And now it's time for Kitchings. Every year, school districts spend $18,000 per teacher for professional development services, but they're not getting much bang for their buck, according to Better Lesson CEO Alex Grodd. Better Lesson has closed a $6 million round to build a better tool that the CEO hopes will put district dollars to work. Investors include Reach Capital, New Markets Venture Fund, Dell Foundation, Intuit co-founder Scott Cook, and his wife, Sinye Otsby. Zybooks has raised a $4 million round of investment led by Biala Venture Partners. Founded in San Francisco in 2012, Zybooks makes interactive digital resources for students majoring in computer science or engineering. Congratulations to them and to all the other companies that raised money this week. What's so funny is I think I came here expecting I was going to get a lot of answers, and I feel like I'm coming away with a lot more questions, well, that, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's the difference between skepticism and cynicism. Yeah. <laughs> Cynic, cynics have the answers. Yeah. Uh, I don't have those answers. I have a lot of hunches about things. That right there is Larry Cuban, an academic whose thoughts and feelings about ed tech are the ones we're featuring on the Ed Surge podcast today. Cuban's writings have great impact and reach in education. Every year, Rick Hess puts out an Edu Scholar Public Influence Ranking. The metrics recognize university-based scholars in the U.S. who contribute most substantially to public debates about education. And Larry, he makes the top 10 list every single year. Now, I've been reading his writings ever since I was in the classroom, and his work was a staple for my Masters of Education classes in grad school as well. But talking with him in person revealed a whole new light about who he is as a voice and as a teacher. And here's a fun fact. Diane Tavener, founder of Summit Public Schools, was one of his students. Now, some of you may think Larry Cuban is vehemently against technology. Some of you may think of him as a cynic. But to capture the true spirit of Larry Cuban, we're bringing you this interview completely unedited, candidly him. You might hear a phone ring in the background, but Larry just ignores it. So, we will too. Okay, so I am sitting in the living room of the esteemed Stanford professor emeritus, Larry Cuban. Now, Larry, you get a lot of references online, in person. You know, you've been a teacher, a superintendent, a researcher, everything. But if you had to self-identify, what what would you self-identify as first and foremost? Are you an educator or a professor? What do you think? I would I would call myself a teacher <coughs> at different levels because uh, I've ta- I've taught in uh, high schools, I've taught at the university, and through my writing I teach. That's the way I look at it. So I see myself first and foremost as a teacher. Talk to me. So how do you teach through writing? Now you have a blog online. I do. Okay. And uh, you teach through uh, writing because you're getting ideas out there. And if it's a, uh, a post on a blog, you're getting comments and you can have a back and forth, which is uh, not the same as a face-to-face interaction, mm-hmm. but it's the next best thing. Interesting. And you're starting a conversation. The conversation, you never know where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so it's it's another form of teaching. Mm-hmm. And the older I get, I'm looking for other ways because teaching itself is very exhausting. Mm-hmm. 
at least the way uh, that I've done it. And um, it, it's, uh, it takes a lot out of me now to teach face-to-face -face with a class. I gave up teaching at the university two years ago. I would teach seminars, even though I'd retired many years ago. And I really enjoyed it. I love the students. So um, out of necessity, I call writing a form of teaching mm -hmm. because it's another way to uh, get ideas out in the arena and have interactions with people. And I'm, I'm no stranger to what you've written, but your blog has been one of your more recent sort of additions to your writing. So what do you see as the difference between you know, writing of the days of old and then sort of the online blogging world that's become so prominent? Uh, uh, the blog is a kind of all-purpose kind of thing for me. It uh, permits me to take what is uh, uh, new, what comes up from Ed Surge or from uh, 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 Eduwonk or some of the other blog posts that I read. Mm -hmm. And if there is an uh, on uh, there are a lot of curated uh, news articles. Mm -hmm. So sometimes something comes up and the blog gives me an opportunity to write about it. Mm -hmm. A second thing about the blog, uh, because my rules for the blog is that try to stay within 800 words, have a point of view and support the point of view. Those are the three rules that I follow for the blog. And it gives me a chance to try out ideas that may coalesce into a article, a book, an, another op-ed piece, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So uh, the blog is a, a great vehicle for me. I've been doing it now, it'll be seven years. Wow. Yeah, so uh, I, uh, it's highly motivating for me. Do you have a favorite blog entry that kind of sticks out in your mind? Uh, some of them uh, are uh, not really, uh, because I write about so many different subjects. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, are, there are a cluster of ones that I, I really like. Some are about technology, some are about teaching, uh, teachers that I've described, and uh, my own teaching. Uh, uh, I have a book that's just out, so I've described how I taught 50, 60 years ago, and how I teach, and how uh, the teaching occurs in the very same schools that I used to teach in. Mm. So, you know, it. Um, uh, as I said, it's highly motivating. And you've, I mean, your background, you've been a teacher, you've been a superintendent, yes. you've been in a lot of these roles, and, um, you know, the fact that you mentioned point of view a little while ago, focusing on technology for a second. So, you know, when I said to people in the Ed Surge office that we were going to be talking, you know, one girl said she likes reading your blog because she feels like you take a fresh, this is what she said, a freshly cynical approach to technology. <laughs> so I, I'm curious to get your honest opinion. Yes. So the growing interest in ed tech, is it really all that new and why does it seem like everyone wants to talk about technology in schools these days? Uh, it, uh, what's happened is that it, it has, uh, the interest has accelerated and expanded, but the desktops came out in 30 years ago. Huh. Uh, the first Apple, the Atari, and then Apple, uh, uh, those Macs came out in uh, 1984, 1981, two, three, four. So, uh, and it exploded. But the access on the part of teachers and students was very, very limited for the first 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. In the 90s, with laptops coming out, uh, it really accelerated. But I think what has given uh, ed tech 
a, a huge push has been the larger reform ideology, which is uh, 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 informed by uh, uh, business interests. Uh, it's uh, trying to increase uh, public school efficiency and effectiveness, uh, triggered a lot by the Nation at Risk report, which came out in 1983, mm -hmm. where um, basically uh, uh, the business roundtable, the CEOs of the nation uh, combined with civic leaders and said American schools are lousy. Mm -hmm. And we and they use as uh, proof uh, international test scores, we've got to improve schools. Well, technology was going through the economy and just, uh, uh, you know, just changing the job structure, changing industries, uh, and uh, the application of technology to public schools seemed natural mm -hmm. for, the, for the, the prevailing ideology of school reform. Mm -hmm. That's how I would attribute. And when the, uh, when the money became more and more available, then, uh, and as the technology improved, and as student access increased, uh, you have this, uh, I wouldn't say it's an explosion. I called it an evolving kind of uh, huge interest in technology that fit in the, with the reform ideology. That would be my explanation for it. So the two sort of almost catalyzed each other in a way. Very much so, although um, it was really, it started with the assumption that public schools were failing. Mm -hmm. And they meant, uh, they being those reformers uh, drawn from hedge funds, from civic leaders, uh, uh, CEOs, uh, they, the belief and the, uh, the set of assumptions and beliefs or that uh, public schools could be better and the application of efficiency devices and efficiency attitudes uh, and efficiency procedures, mm -hmm. that would, is what schools needed. And that's where we, we are still there. Mm -hmm. uh, what has, uh, the change has been the ex rapid expansion of particularly with tablets mm -hmm. as the prices have con gone down for the devices and as software has proliferated, yeah. So all of that, to me, fits together. Do you see in, in all of this history more evidence of failure with technology or promise with technology? Well, uh, I'm not a cynic, uh, as you're Right now or said. anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. I've never been a cynic. I wouldn't be in education. Okay. To be cynical means you have basically the disappointment is so severe and you're depressed about it and you have no energy to do anything about it. I'm skeptical. You're skeptical. And uh, uh, being skeptical is very different. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, uh, it's part of my character to be skeptical. It's the way I was raised, it's the way I grew up. And, uh, it's, uh, and skepticism and curiosity are, are very close in my mind. Mm. So, um, I've been skeptical of technology because primarily the earliest technologies that I studied uh, for classrooms began with the film, with Thomas Edison and the film. Mm. He started a private company and he thought that films would get rid of textbooks. And that morphed into the radio 
instructional television, and then the computer. Mm -hmm. So by looking at all the hype that surrounded each one of these, and the access to those early ones was very limited, mm -hmm. very limited. When I started teaching, um, there was one 16 millimeter projector in a, the department's storeroom. That was back in what year? In 1956. Yeah. So, um, so the, the pattern of hype leading to disappointment, mm -hmm. leading to another cycle of prom over promising with the next technology has a long history to it. And uh, if I cite MOOCs, you, you know where uh, I would uh, That's just the most recent incarnation of that. Right. Yeah. So uh, I'm skeptical for those reasons, but it, uh, both personally and as a teacher, uh, I, I've used uh, technology, and I don't mean that apologetically. It's just uh, it, uh, these are things that help me do what I want to do in the classroom. Yeah. And I would venture to say that out of all the people that make comments about technology and have a prevalent voice out there, you probably have much more teaching and administrative experience than a lot of them. And I get this question all the time, you know, whether I think technology is going to replace teachers at one point. I, I think that that is absolutely ludicrous, but I'm sure that you've gotten that question before. I have. And what, what is your response to that? Well, I think ludicrous is a great word <laughs> uh, because you've been a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. So you've taught. And if you look upon teaching as a helping profession, like social work, nursing, uh, uh, psychotherapy, mm -hmm. those are help, medicine, those are helping professions. They are completely dependent on interaction. Mm. Now, all of those have had new technologies applied to them. But if you believe that teaching, like these others, is anchored in a relationship between an adult and a child and a student, then it can't, that can't be replaced. Mm. That can't be replaced, and not from my way of thinking. Now, there are a lot of things about teaching that can be automated. Um, a lot of the teachers' administrative uh, stuff, the grade books and things like that, they're very helpful. I used uh, a lot of that, and uh, it, I found it very helpful. So, um, but uh, to replace, no, that's, uh, that's uh, a kind of... Uh, rosy scenario that borders on fantasy mm. yeah and a fantasy that comes from a place of what like why would someone imagine that efficiency. teachers be replaced okay efficiency again look you got cyber schools cyber charter schools like virtual schools virtual schools now some of them are for profit mm -hmm. and uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows that uh, they are trying to make uh, they're trying to eat at the public trough uh, from funding, but the nonprofit virtual schools and uh, uh, and a lot of uh, online uh, schooling, uh, online instruction, and then online schools, they provide services for different groups of people that are isolated, that need help. I think that's terrific, mm -hmm. uh, but that will not replace uh, teaching. The reason online has spread so much, and there's a lot of uh, 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 hullabaloo about it 
is that it's ultimately less expensive. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Labor-saving devices, which has spread throughout the, our culture and throughout our uh, society, uh, the single most important cost is labor. So when you look at teaching, when I was a superintendent, personnel was 70% uh, of the budget. Yeah. So the, the dream of uh, cutting back on that, that making uh, education less expensive, now that's hardly talked about publicly, but I think that's part of the drive. But part of it is to provide services to people who would ordinarily not have services. I think that's great. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk for a second about sort of where where you are right now, because you know, back in January, you laid out your reasons on your blog, saying that you were going to shift from reporting more on, I think it was, or shifting focus from disappointments and failures right. in use of new technology to best cases yes. of of such use. Right. So why why the change? Well, uh, I'm a skeptic. I'll I'll be a skeptic until uh, going to the ground. That that won't go away. But I wanted, uh, I, in reading and watching class, in reading about teachers who were t using technology and, uh, and watching some very imaginative, creative uh, uh, teachers, uh, another way to find out about the strengths and shortcomings of technology is to look at best cases. Mm. That's another way. Mm -hmm. uh, the disappointments and failures uh, won't go away. They're going to continue. Because, They'll always be there. Because technology is so embedded in our culture as a positive good that uh, it'll all, there'll always be overpromise. Mm -hmm. That's just the nature of it in this society. Mm -hmm. And it's the history of the uh, um, adoptions of technology mm -hmm. in the U.S., okay? So rather than just focus, because that's going to continue, you can make a living out of it if you wanted to. But I'm more interested in, well, what are the best cases? And I want to see them at the uh, classroom level, mm -hmm. at the school level, and then at the district level. Because U.S. education is decentralized, 13,000 districts, 14,000 districts. I want to see it at three different levels. Because there are individual teachers who are exemplars, that uh, anyone who loves technology would embrace the kind of the teachers that I've already begun to see mm -hmm. and have seen. But whether you can scale it up to a school, that's harder because you have to have structures and the culture across the school and the leadership that would create this kind of learning culture where people share, collaborate, and everything around uh, achieving the goals through technology. Mm -hmm. That's harder. And then at a district, scaling up to that is even more uh, difficult. So I wanted to look for those best cases. Okay. And, and then see whether uh, that, by looking at best cases, is this the promise of technology that people have been uh, saying for years? And, uh, and you, you see it, and therefore you can do it mm -hmm. because you have what they call an existence proof. If it occurs, it can be replicated. Mm -hmm. uh, or 
not or. And if you see it, then these best cases, are there some downsides to it? That's where the skepticism comes in. Some downsides to being successful with it? Yes. Mm. Oh, exactly. Huh. Well, for the sake of example, uh, you got when you mentioned about uh, technology increasing the opportunity. Oh, um, uh, worsening the opportunity gap or making it larger. Uh, in a school, when you have some teachers that are doing this mm -hmm. and other teachers aren't, the kids are moving from class to class, that's in that gap. Mm -hmm. So with a skeptical point of view, I have a chance of looking at that to, in this case, offer those people who are so hyped up on technology other questions to consider than the ones they ordinarily would consider from someone who documents disappointments and failures. Do you follow me? I do. Yeah. And, I, and I'm thinking because I know sometimes that we, we get dinged because, you know, we, we look at some examples of schools that are doing some pretty innovative things, but a lot of them are charters, a lot of them are independent, a lot yes. of them are micro schools. Right. Some of them are public districts. Yeah. So where you know where are you going to look for those successes well it's interesting because i've been in this area for 30 years and i've done a lot of writing and teaching mm -hmm. there i know a lot of people you know a lot of people <laughs> and a lot of people know you <laughs> yeah so uh, uh i'm in the uh, uh the san mateo high school union san mateo union high school district there we go and i've been uh, observing some teachers i'm going to uh, go tomorrow to see another teacher and then uh, I'm, uh, I've uh, contacted someone who uh, runs the Summit Schools. Summit Public Schools. The which Charter is, Schools. Which has gotten a lot of press over the last right. few years. Uh, the person who founded it was a former student of mine. Really? Diane Tavener? Yes. She became a <laughs> wow. principal. Uh, she got her principal certification through Stanford. Huh. And I'm a marvelous student and everything. I haven't. Uh, had to we've exchanged occasional emails over the years but when I had this idea I contacted her and she was so gracious welcomed me in so I'm starting to uh, I've been to uh, one summit school I'll go to another they're having professional development tomorrow so I'll go there and see some of the teachers that I've seen teach so those are the two uh, someone who is another former student of mine, uh, runs a private school, an upscale Catholic private school. Mm. And uh, uh, she and I had coffee uh, this week, and uh, she was talking about uh, the cultural principles that motivate the Catholic uh, school the parents were paying a very high tuition for it. Mm -hmm. And whether or not technology reinforces it, undercuts it, mm -hmm. challenges it, mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting question. It's a very, having taught in a Catholic school, I can tell you it's a very interesting dynamic. And yeah. one that you don't see at non-religious schools. You do not. Uh, it's the issue of uh, technology and a certain kind of culture that's a humanistic culture that is anchored in religious principles and uh, to what degree does uh, technology uh, support it, strengthen it, mm -hmm. or, under, uh, or undermine it? Mm -hmm. Because technology is highly 
uh, it's individualized, it can be collaborative, but our culture is so individualized and the Catholic ideology is much more community-oriented. That's right. Mm -hmm. So I thought that's interesting, but it's only me. I don't have a grant to do this. I'm doing it because I'm curious about it. It's another direction in the sunset of my life. So I, I, uh, it's very interesting. But if I, uh, so I'll, I'll uh, I'm, I told my friend that I'm going to consider it. And uh, uh, after I do these public schools, I'd like to do a private school. Yeah. You know what's so funny is I think I came here expecting I was going to get a lot of answers, and I feel like I'm coming away with a lot more questions, well, that, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's the difference between skepticism and cynicism. Yeah. <laughs> Cynic, cynics have the answers. Yeah. Uh, I don't have those answers. I have a lot of hunches about things. Well, I have to tell you, what's so fascinating to me is that we just had Diane Tavener. Oh, did you? Uh, we just had her. She was on the last podcast. and um, I, I, I saw the reference to it. So yeah. she was debating against Benjamin Riley, Riley about right. personalized learning. And so it's funny to hear that she was your student because that must be kind of coming full circle for you, seeing you know a student, an old student of yours, realize this model. But I got to ask because I know that I've seen both um, – that healthy skepticism and some, you know, kind of positivity about personalized learning on your yes. on your blog. Yeah. Uh, and you're asking me about personalized learning? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I want to see it at work at, uh, uh, at Summit. Mm. Uh, 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 I had a, a nice conversation with Diane uh, and Adam, who is in charge of a lot of the things. The chief academic officer? Yes. Yes. Uh, Adam Carter. Adam Carter. Yes. Uh, and I was really taken with it uh, in this sense that they came to it very late as a way of trying to deal with an issue that uh, crept up on them mm -hmm. and hit them right between the eyes. And you know what I'm going to talk about. I don't know if I do. Okay. Which was that they graduate all these kids to go to college. and about just over half are finishing, mm -hmm. that shocked the hell out of them. That's the same issue that we experienced with the KIPP students that I used to teach, I actually. See. Yeah. Well, uh, what I admire about what uh, Diane and Adam and their staff is doing, they said, well, let's take another look at what we're doing mm -hmm. to see how we can strengthen the experiences of kids while they're here so that they will have the skills and the attitudes necessary to finish college. Hmm. That's powerful from my point of view. And that's where personalized learning comes in. Mm -hmm. And you see that uh, the, the uses of technology to achieve your other goals is very sensible and always has been for me. But do you need technology to personalize learning? I mean, haven't teachers been doing that or at least trying to do that for years? They have, with paper and pencil, differentiated materials, of course. Mm -hmm. what, uh, uh, what some of the software does and some of the hardware does, it makes it more teacher-friendly efficiency. Mm -hmm. So that I just saw a Spanish teacher a couple days ago she does uh, uh, amazing things, but she has to do a lot of the planning, first of all. But she has these kids voting. It's a Spanish teacher, and uh, she has these kids voting on the answers to a worksheet on the tablet, on mm -hmm. the Chromebook. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and so she has immediate feedback. And what you would have to do before that is ask the kids to raise their hands. But raising hands, the kids look around to see who else has raised their hand. But with this, a tablet, they, uh, and it's anonymous, the teacher has immediate feedback on whether or not she has to reteach something. I mean, that's great. And so the hardware and software make that possible for teachers to be more efficient at the planning level. Uh, and while the teaching is actually uh, going on, mm -hmm. and that is, those for me are definite pluses as long as teachers understand that technology is not the centerpiece, it's not the foreground, mm -hmm. it's the background. Mm -hmm. And there are teachers who understand that, there are principals who understand that, and there are occasional superintendents who understand that. Right. Yeah. The personalized learning then fits in um, uh, not as a end product, because mm -hmm. the School of One, you're familiar with In that. New York. In New York, yep. and they've changed the name and everything. I think now it's Teach to One. Yeah, Teach to One, mm -hmm. and then there are schools that have started that uh, pride themselves on being personalized. Mm -hmm. But as you know, and uh, there are so many definitions of personalized learning. It's taken over from blended learning. There's just so many buzzwords out there. I feel like we encounter them every single day. It's every single day, and asking people what they mean by it when they use it is very helpful. Mm. It won't get you, make you friends at all. <laughs> But it's very, very helpful. Why doesn't it make you friends? Well, because it forces the person to think yeah. about what they're assuming and uh, what it is that they are so enthusiastic about. There's nothing wrong with that, mm -hmm. particularly if your tone is friendly. <laughs> you know, it's not hostile. <laughs> I'm a friendly guy, so you can, uh, you can ask that kind of a question. Yeah. So personalized learning... Uh, is an umbrella that covers an entire spectrum mm -hmm. from the kinds of things that uh, Diane is trying to do, to teach one, to cyber schools, mm -hmm. you know. And so that spectrum is so broad, that's why you need to ask uh, anyone using the phrase, what do you mean? How do you see it working? Right. Yeah. And then there's this other group that actually I want to ask you about because you know, we encounter them a lot in, in the EdSurge landscape, which is the people actually making and funding the tools, right? The venture capitalists, yes. the companies. I mean, you know, you mentioned before um, the, the concept of, you know, superintendents seeing as tech being a tool but not the be-all, end-all, teachers right. knowing that. Do you think that the, the companies and the VCs get that as well? A, a, it's, I, I get concerned there's a fundamental disagreement between the two, but you know what you live in the Bay Area. What's the disagreement you see? Well, I, I worry sometimes that a lot of tools are being made and funded without necessarily thinking about the users in mind. That's my concern. Yeah, well, that's been a, a, a pattern in the industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some startups and there are some uh, uh, firms that are user-friendly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Diane told me that f Facebook, I'm not going to answer it, Facebook uh, uh, sent four software engineers over to Summit. That's right. And, uh, uh, and the engineers started with a say, we don't know what you guys know. You are the experts mm -hmm. on this. Mm -hmm. So we have to learn from you. That's rare. Mm 
That's very rare in my experience. Mm. Uh, so uh, getting back to your question, uh, I see it as a fundamental dilemma. There are a, a clashing of two highly prized values. Um, there's a profit. Mm -hmm. uh, and the desire for profit. The desire for profit is there. That's highly valued. Mm -hmm. You're not going to give a company, uh, a small company, uh, $10 million unless you believe that there's a 1 in 10 chance, 1 in 15 chance that that will pay off and will be profitable. Mm -hmm. The other is the uh, highly prized value that technology is indeed the answer mm -hmm. uh, to uh, educational problems. Mm -hmm. the people believe that deeply and uh, not everyone and the degree of uh, the strength of those beliefs will vary. Which people believe that, do you think? The people, a lot of venture capitalists believe that. The people who do startups in the education realm, mm -hmm. they believe that. And uh, I'm not critical of that. That's a belief system. I understand that. I have my own beliefs. Uh, but when it comes to uh, schools where there is... Uh, where the complexity of teaching and the complexity of the relationships and the structure and the culture, all of that is often not thoroughly understood by those folks. Mm. And so they think that the, uh, the hardware and the software will be a technical solution to these problems that have been around for centuries mm -hmm. that are in the uh, in the very basis of having tax-supported tax public schools. Mm -hmm. So uh, the belief in a technical solution is very strong. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, uh, and I don't believe in that, that there's a technical solution uh, to teaching, uh, to uh, running a school, uh, uh, governing a district, or anything like that. Education is far too complex for a technical solution. Education is complex for anything. <laughs> well, but a lot of people don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. And why? Well, they've been students. They've gone to school. Their kids go to school. So they're experts. And I do say that with a tinge of irritation. Uh, so they think they're experts on it. Everyone's been to school. Well, schools in... Um, East Palo Alto, Ravenswood District there, and schools in uh, San Mateo Union High School District are socioeconomically poles apart. Mm -hmm. That has a lot, makes the complexity even uh, more overwhelming and intimidating. Mm -hmm. If people factor that uh, socioeconomic status in. And um, so, a lot of, uh, so the people who believe in technical solutions tend to have the money. Hmm. Yeah. We could go on, I feel like, forever about this, but I'm also aware of time. So I just want to ask you one more question. Sure. Which is, I feel like we've been, quote unquote, reforming education for years. That's correct. And it seems like it's constantly, you know, with every next generation, yes. they say, I've got the answer, I've got the answer. Right. I guess my last question is, is there an answer? And if not, what does that mean for, you know, working in education and, and being a part of this complex problem? Well, uh, you're uh, 
uh, you're talking to a historian. I've been trained in the history of education, so I've studied reform. Okay. Uh, David Tyak and I wrote a book uh, 20 years ago called Tinkering Toward Utopia. And that is a po that's a positive thing. It's not a negative. Meaning that there have been repeated efforts to try to alter tax-supported public schools in this country mm -hmm. over and over again for two centuries. And what we came up with was that a couple things. One is that when there are uh, national problems, economic, social, political, foreign policy, schools are often drafted to help save, to solve those problems. Mm -hmm. That's the cliche where when the country has a cold, schools sneeze. That's a common cliche, which means that schools are a reactive institution that are highly dependent politically and for money on the larger uh, society. People vote ta uh, to tax themselves to have public schools. So schools then are political institutions and therefore in that kind of arena, Whenever there is a need to solve a problem, there's always an educational piece to it. Mm -hmm. The economic problem of U.S. being, have low productivity, losing out to foreign competitors in the 70s and 80s. So we have the nation at risk looking at schools. Uh, the idea that, uh, uh, that schools can solve uh, problems of alcoholism, uh, teenage uh, sexuality. Mm -hmm. you, you see which way I'm going. Right. So there's everything is put into the curriculum mm -hmm. to try to solve those kinds of problems. So uh, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, David Labrie, calls it educationalizing national problems. That seems incredibly intimidating and a huge burden for schools to handle. It is. And that's why there's always going to be efforts to reform. Mm -hmm. Because uh, school people, very few, uh, the reason superintendents are often in favor of reform is that they have to be. Mm -hmm. what, re what superintendent would get up before his or her school board and say, nah, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to, bring in these uh, laptops. We're not going to bring in uh, these uh, uh, new programs at all because we got to have a moratorium on reform. Well, that superintendent will be out on uh, his or her ear. That's a good point. Yeah, so you have enough, Mary Jo? I think I've got enough. Larry, <laughs> you have been fabulous. Thank oh, you so much. Oh, it's fun. Many thousands of congratulations and thanks to Larry Cuban for interviewing with Ed Surge. And thank you to all the writers who contributed pieces to Ed Surge this week. Larry gave us his honest thoughts about startups, and we'll share ours with you too if you meet up with us in New York City next Wednesday. Are you wondering if an EdTech accelerator is right for you? And with more than a dozen options in the U.S. alone, how the heck do you decide which one will help you the most? Veteran entrepreneurs will help other entrepreneurs decide at our free New York City meetup. Come talk to us in NYC on February 24th. All the info is on the EdSearch page on meetup.com. Man, it is crazy to think that a prolific guy like Larry is just a few minutes away from our office. 
Right? I wonder which academic we should bring on next. Maybe Linda Darling-Hammond or Howard Gardner. Neil deGrasse Tyson! Neil deGrasse Tyson! Oh, man, that's the dream. Ugh. And with that, I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm Blake Montgomery, dreaming of Neil deGrasse Tyson. We'll see you next week. This is the Ed Surge Podcast. Thank you.